0: Welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. We are lucky to have uh, Professor Henning Olsen today with us. He's a pediatric urologist from Denmark uh, and I can never pronounce his hospital properly. Our, our house, our house, ours. Uh, but, uh, oh. oh. I, then I definitely haven't got it right, <laughs> <laughs> no gets it right. Um, so uh, Professor Olsen has two interests in life the one is urology and the other is sailing um, but sadly today we're going to talk a little bit about urology and maybe next time it's about sailing <laughs> thank you for joining us, we appreciate your time So Henning, I mean, we'll just jump in. We're going to talk about pelvic ureteric junction obstructions, um, obviously in children. Um, I mean, in the first world, there's obviously a lot of antenatal diagnosis of hydronephrosis. Uh, Does your unit get referred all the patients with this antenatal diagnosis for review? uh, Or do you only see those that end up having a problem uh, later in life? Well, it depends
1: on, 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 if they come from the local area, that means something like 500,000, we will see them. And then uh, uh, if they come from, from outside of the country, which our referral area is something like three and a half million, they are uh, seen in uh, local hospitals. And uh, the prenatal diagnosis is made there. And in case of a bilateral hydronephrosis they, they come up with questions and, and often with bilateral hydronyphosis, they are born in our hospital. Unilateral hydronephrosis are born very normally and, and uh, get a follow-up after a schedule, which we have in the Danish Pediatric Society, in the Danish Urological Society. It's a very clear schedule how to handle these kind of, of patients. Okay. So it's just in case, in case of, of uh, bilateral hydronephrosis then, then they have to uh, be referred to us.
0: So they're referred early, okay. Do you ever get involved in antenatal counselling for these these parents? Well, if we talk
1: about um, infravesical obstruction, means urethral walls, um, we are involved, yes, because this has, in some cases, involves some some questions about continuing uh, the pregnancy and and, and, and the prognosis and what kind of surgery has to be done and what what's the prognosis after surgery and and what what in general the parents have a very little understanding of course uh, what the problem is and then they need some, some uh, discussion.
0: Just to give us an idea, I mean, how many kids with hydronephrosis that's noted antenatal, how many of those kids eventually come to surgery? Is it the majority of them or is it quite infrequent?
1: No, it's, it's very infrequent. In, not very, but it's at around 25 to 30%. We are very conservative in especially un, unilateral hydronephrosis.
0: And, and I mean, you know, obviously there's a massive differential diagnosis for hydronephrosis. Do you know what portion in your units um, eventually end up actually having a, a pelvic junction obstruction out of all the antenatal hydronephrosis patients?
1: The majority, the vast majority is uh, UPGO. Of course it is. Okay. Uh, you see, reflux is... Uh, is the next common cause of a kind of hydronephrosis, but it's not so pronounced. But And if you get trained in a way of looking at the ultrasound, there are many, you know, the AP diameter and the catalysis and, and anything else. But if you look at the ultrasound of a kidney, in many cases you, you have in your mind, well, this is a real hydronephrosis. This is an, a guy we are going to operate on. And this is a guy. There's uh, probably kind of reflux or something like that. And this is very subjective and is not objective at all. But it's uh, based on you know experience, and you cannot describe it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You see, if you see a patient with an appendicitis, um, you make up your mind in the very first moment when you see the patient. Uh, this is the appendicitis. I have going to, I'm going to operate.
0: Gosh. <laughs> isn't it true yes, you, no, see you, it, you get a feel for it and then
1: you start out making all you know the evaluation and, 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 and check and, and, and so on but at the end you will operate because you have seen it just in the very very first moment when you just open the door
0: hmm. look
1: at the child and then you know it okay that's it
0: isn't it right Yes, no, you're right. You, it's uh, you, it's almost like an art. You get a feel the for it. The clinical view, <laughs> but <laughs> you that... cannot
1: describe it. You cannot use it for for studies. It's not uh, it's, it's not something you can use for anything. <laughs> Just
0: your
1: personal your personal you know experience. experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Henning, what exactly is a pulmonary junction obstruction? I mean, how does it develop? What what what's sort of the physics behind it? What's happening?
1: Well, personally, I do not know what it is, and I do uh, know less while time is going. And I, I but it's in, in 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 principle a distortion of the normal architecture, of, and it's, uh, it's fibrosis, dysplasia, something in between, and it's rather um, hypoplasia than an atrophy, and then it's. It's a, it's a growth failure, and that's why, um, because it's a growth failure, that's why only thirty percent need an operation because the child is growing, and in many 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 cases, this condition will resolved spontaneously by nature.
0: Okay. Um, and then, how often do you see extrinsic causes of of PUJ obstructions?
1: What's an extrinsic? You mean something
0: like a lower crossing vessel?
1: Is this extrinsic? (laughs) Uh, My my, my question is um, how many normal children have an aberrant crossing accessory vessel to the lower kidney pole? It's an embryological thing. Uh, The kidney is ascending. From the pelvic region and upwards, and 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 in the ascending process, the normal or all children lose some of the vessels and get some new vessels upstairs. Mm-hmm. And I have um, always thought it's just, uh, it's um, it's a developmental a uh, question, and and. Um, um, there's a reason why we see the, the the crossing vessels, accessory vessel, whatever you will call this. Yeah, um, we see this later in life, and it's very rare. Then you are operating on a very young child. Mm. Uh, you you see a crossing vessel. You see this, what you would call an intrinsic um, obstruction or a high insertion on the the pelvis or whatsoever. It's um, I think it's a bit a different condition.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: The accessory vessel.
0: Okay, so it's not necessarily causing the problem. It's more that it's you know an association.
1: Yeah, it's it, it, it at some point of uh, time it's 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 the cause for the symptoms. Yeah.
0: Okay. Because
1: if you have the if they have the, the, the crossing vessel, and you have a hydronephrosis and. They drink a lot or whatsoever they do the the, the will kink over the 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 accessory vessel and and then they get uh, symptoms and vomiting and pain and and uh, um these are symptoms which are caused by this crossing vessel of course they are
0: okay okay. Yeah. you
1: operate on these guys you see a lot of fibrosis hmm. a lot of fibrosis around the the, um, the upgo and um, you can relieve this fibrosis but I, essentially we will be, be back on this and when we come to to operation um, um, how to operate these um, I think uh, when you operate on a hydronephrosis you should always do a dismembered by the pastor but we can get go back to this later
0: yeah we'll discuss a bit more in detail later yeah. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about some of the symptoms that these children present with. I mean, obviously, those that are diagnosed antenatally, have regular routine Um, Mm follow-up. But those that um, aren't diagnosed antenatally, and we obviously see more of those than you do, you mentioned some of the typical symptoms, but maybe we can just go through those again. Um, What are some of the things that they present with?
1: Well... (laughs) One thing um, an older nurse in our department has observed is that they start to thrive after you relieve the hydronephrosis in the newborns. And um, their bowel movements are changing and um, something is happening. Because when you're born with a hydronephrosis, you don't know what pain is because you are born, you're, you're just developed with this pain if this is pain what Mm. is pain pain is something you you find out when you are born and and, then perhaps before you're born and it's something which is intermittent but if you have constant pain it's not a pain it's just a condition it's just life is these poor children they just uh, they live with this condition and that's it they they think life is like this okay Okay. we have to find out And uh, later in life, they get the symptoms. Typically, Mm -hmm. the the crossing vessel, as as I mentioned, the the, the vomiting and and the pain. And this lasts for some of them half an hour, others of them two days. Some of them avoiding uh, vomiting. And when they're vomiting, they lose a lot of of, uh, 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 fluid yeah. And um, losing a lot of fluid means reducing urine production, reducing urine production resolves the problem with the kidney, and then, 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 then the, the symptoms disappear. Okay. An essential difference between these two kinds of children is that, that uh, many of the children with crossing vessels and intermittent symptoms... Mm-hmm have uh, nearly a normal differential function of their kidney okay. while the, the young ones they might, from the beginning have a decreased differential function in, in, in their, uh, their kidney
0: Okay, well that's quite an interesting fact Yeah. Do you, do you see a lot of urinary tract infections in these, this group of patients?
1: No, no Once in a while the same as, as hematuria. The same is true for for stones. We see more and more. I think.
0: Okay. In the older ones in older patients. Yeah.
1: Rarely in in gunshot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but 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 you have to ask people about them from from the from Turkey or, or from the uh, Eastern Asia. They have Much more stones there, in, in, in even in, in hydronephrosis children, yeah,
0: than yeah. We have. okay. Yeah, I think there's some obviously some genetic predisposition as well. Yeah,
1: your yeah, genetic uh, environment, and you can speculate about what, what's the reason. Is
0: mm-hmm. um, do we see these more common in males versus females, uh, left versus right, or most of them bilateral? What, what's your experience? Uh, in your carotid patients,
1: well, bilateral is about fifteen percent, ten fifteen percent, not more. And it's more in children; it's more on the left side. Um, in both groups, I can say, and and in, in both male and females. Okay. Whether um, uh, there are more males in the in the accessory vessels. Right. Vessel we we have a database about these these guys and and uh, it's obvious that the the, the more males fifty five percent males than females in the older group. Okay, so yeah.
0: All right. You mentioned that um, your kids with internatal uh, diagnosis of hydrometrosis obviously have a regular screening program, and then they get referred to you any of these problems. Um, what's some of your inv- your investigations of kids with suspected uh, polycystic junction obstructions? What 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 things do you guys look at?
1: Well, if you we have a unilateral hydronephrosis, we do it about seven to ten days after birth because the <coughs> kidney function is not fully developed; it's not fully after six weeks. But we do it after seven to ten days to get some kidney function, and when when then they start drinking and avoiding it, okay. Um, if we have a case of bilateral, we do the ultrasound already pre-natal diagnosed children. We we do the ultrasound the day on of birth, uh, just to, to avoid that we are overlooking cases of uh, infravasical obstruction. Okay. I mean, the walls, mm. uh, but we will always repeat this study day seven. And then we will do, depending a bit on on what we find, um, about the four weeks old, and then again at at uh, three months. Um, the nuclear studies are postponed always to four to six weeks due to the development of of the nephrons. Uh, it takes at least four weeks to get some some proper answer from the nuclear studies. Yeah, and. Um, <clears throat> so we we wait for this time and it depends of course how much it is. it's very rare that you think that you need to operate or do some relief uh, just after birth in a upgo mm-hmm. it's very i haven't seen this yes so i don't think so yeah. it's
0: very rare. okay can i can i ask i mean there's you know initially when you know people started talking about doing antenatal ultrasounds in neonates for this condition. They used to always talk about the size of the pelvis um, and, you know, did it have some bearing on surgery and outcomes and those things. And my impression is there's been a bit of a move away from that. Um, Do you still find it important to see the size of the pelvis in these kids, and these neonates?
1: Well, we look mostly because of, of communication causes we look most uh, of all of the intrarenal anti, uh, anterior posterior diameter
0: mm-hmm.
1: of the pelvis the, the external part of the pelvis is so far n- not of interest right because this is just the nature's way of, of uh, defending the kidney against the against the possible obstruction while the intrarenal AP di- diameter has been shown that it is, has some significance. Um, on the on the prognosis, and um, we use um, AP diameter of 12 millimeters when we call call the case a hydronephrosis. Yes. Uh, the radiologists they call a hydronephrosis after an AP diameter of 10 millimeters. Both of us might be right, <laughs> but but it has something to do with the follow up most cases you don't have this question but if you have a, an, an, an AP diameter of uh, seven millimeters let's say seven millimeters so we, we will make one ultrasound after four weeks and if this is true still is true uh, we will not do any more we will uh, we do, will not do a nuclear study and we will not, we just leave the child and that's it
0: Okay. Uh,
1: so we will not make any further investigations.
0: Mm-hmm. We okay. don't
1: call this agnophosis.
0: <clears throat> okay, so it's more of a screening tool then. <clears throat> yeah. Um, we, I mean, we've been using MAG-3s as our nuclear study. Are you using the same? Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you maybe just go through what some of the principles are behind the MAG-3? What, what are we looking for and what makes it useful in PUJ obstruction? Yeah. The McFree
1: is a renography. It's, 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 it's both a renography and it's a scintigraphy. Uh, for us, the most important part of it is uh, the, the, the uh, scintigraphic part of the examination. That means to find out the differential function. Okay. And something which is very important, that you have to look at the pictures these nuclear medicine guys are doing, especially in a newborn child. Mm. If you have a right sided, quite large hydronephrosis, the liver is very close and the background um, in these examinations can be quite active close to the liver and make give you some misinterpretation, especially in large in large uh, kidneys, enlarged kidneys. Right. Um, you have to be very careful, on 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 their interpretation of the differential function, and where they place, especially when the the function is down to twenty or something like that. You, you look carefully at these pictures, not just at the the curves and, and tracing there, but look at the pictures, look what's going on there, and where have they drawn the lines?
0: Mm-hmm. Because
1: the line in the in the Mac three they draw on the picture a subjective assessment of the nuclear medicine and not uh, not uh, the truth. Yeah. So be careful Be careful there. Um, with regard to the washout, well, in smaller children, we don't realize. If you have a normal uh, curve, a normal curve means uh, like a, Poisson distribution, if you remember this from your statistics, uh, this is a normal curve. Okay. Uh, but but uh, if you have an abnormal curve, you cannot uh, uh, interpret this as an obstruction, even if it goes up after half an hour or something like that. It depends on the size of the size of the pelvis. If you have a bath tube on the one side, and mm-hmm. uh, just normal, normal wash, hand wash on the other side. And you have the same amount of uh, nuclear activity in both of them. No matter what, if the, if the drainage is the same, the activity will sustain in the large system for much longer than the, the other system. This does not mean that there's an obstruction. Okay. they it's completely the same, the same um, drainage on both sides. Right, right. The, the, the disease size has to drain much more volume to, to get rid of, of the activity. Okay. So be careful interpreting um, large systems with their time or anything else.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Furuzamide might uh, help you a bit. If you get a kick after furuzamide, you, can, you, you have, can be quite sure that there is not very much obstruction. Obstruction is not absolute. It's not a complete obstruction. It's a, a Obstruction is a, it's a degree of obstruction, if there is obstruction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, there's no established washout time in the literature in children in contrast to adults in adults you have established washout times you, you should rely on but but in, in children there is no literature about the, 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 the real washout time the preferred washout time there are no good studies
0: on there aren't there ok so we must just bear that in mind obviously when we interpret the, the MAG-3 tests um, have you been using, or are you tempted to look at MR urography with gadolinium?
1: We have been tempted a couple of years ago, uh, especially because the the MRI uh, urography was was uh, in a kind of way of to um, estimate the differential function in the kidneys. But a few years ago in Denmark we had a scandal about the gadolinium um, with some. Adult patients uh, in with insufficient kidney function, they get uh, a lot of fibrosis and symptoms after gadolinium. Very few patients, but you know how things are. Yeah. Uh, once you have a story in the, the newspapers, then it will hang on. And uh, since then, it has been uh, forbidden to do, do any kind of this gadolinium, especially not in children. So this is not an option anymore. We use uh, MRI for... Uh, without gadolinium for some some reasons, if we have unclear anatomy for for any kind of dilat- dilation of the upper tract, but but uh, it's not a routine, not of course not.
0: Okay, okay. Um, so I mean, obviously, once we've made the diagnosis and we've done the um, the nuclear studies and those things, obviously at some stage we need to decide whether we're either going to watch the patients or we're going to consider offering them surgery. Um, where, when do you make that distinction? What what kind of things are you looking at to make that decision? Well,
1: we, have, we have some Nordic guidelines which define uh, when the kidney function is deteriorating and when we are suggested to to do uh, surgery, um, we do operate when the differential function on follow up uh, decreases more than 5%. Okay. Um, if there is a huge progress on ultrasound, and then you might. Uh, Recall the studies from Great Ormond Street. If you have an AP diameter of uh, more than 35 to 50 in, in the intrarenal uh, pelvis, then we find the indication. We discuss the indication for surgery.
0: Right. Yes. Right. Um, and I mean, on your first MAG-3, if there's a, a big difference in differential function between the two kidneys... Um, would you consider it then, or would you still watch them to see what's happening?
1: If this is an ongoing discussion. If you uh, our limit for normal differential function is forty percent. Hmm. Uh, in Copenhagen, it is forty-two percent, and somewhere else might be something else. This is, uh, yeah, it's not not really really clear where where it should be done, but. Um, we follow always the children. And if you you are born with a differential function, you have a hydrophrosis, born with a hydrophrosis, significant hydrophrosis means something like 20 millimeters, an AP diameter, and then you get uh, come out at four, six weeks with a differential function of, let's say, 38%. Yeah, We will not operate. We will operate, if the follow-up, shows us that the differential function is decreasing, decreasing. This may be too late because a differential function of 38% may be a sign of we are losing some nephrons.
0: Right.
1: If you remember that the kidney is uh, normally working on, on 30% of its capacity, and if the differential function decreases, that is critical, because then the child might might be uh, in in the kidney might be in danger. Mm-hmm. This is an ongoing question, and and but on the other hand, you have children where nothing happens, and and the the the, the differential function may increase after the thirty eight percent to forty two. But when you talk about differential function, you have to talk about the function of the contralateral kidney.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, it's a balance, and it 's not the absolute number mm-hmm. so it 's always a balance, so uh, one has to be very careful in this interpretation of these differential functions, especially if you don 't know the, the complete uh, uh, kidney function, but it 's very difficult to detect the precise total kidney function and the the potential of uh, of uh, the kidneys in a child.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but and with that in mind, I mean, I mean, how do you approach kids with suspected bilateral uh, PUJ obstruction?
1: Well, there we are, of course, much more aggressive. Uh, if we if we have the uh, bilateral hydrophrosis and the bilateral hydrophosis is significant, we are very prone to to do surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a VCOG and after a complete, you know, follow uh, workout of of the child, yeah, Often yeah. Work with a, a cestoscopy and uh, all these things we normally not will do with it, with a with a a single hydronephrosis, we'll not do any VCOG. If the if the ultrasound guys are sure that there's no dilated dilated uh, ureter and and, and and problems with the bladder.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, I mean, you mentioned briefly, but w- what's your operation of choice for children with PUJ obstruction?
1: It's a dismembering. The Anderson Heinz procedure, in principle, yes. Uh, there are many other procedures which are kind of emergency procedures, but you never should rely on this Foley or XY plasties I have tried it a couple of times. <laughs> I have paid for this, so <laughs> don't do this. Don't do this. <laughs>
0: so it's, it's as much safer just many, to resect the whole section.
1: Many, many. There, there are so many variations in in the UPG obstruction, uh, in UPG junction obstruction. You you see when you operate them, and, and if you think you can do uh, sometimes you think you you just release the fibrosis around, and and the kinking, in Uh, Everything looks nice. Mm. Don't do this. Cut (laughs) and dismember. And you're on the safe side. It's uh, my message from here. So have a couple of hundreds of these guys, uh, dismember.
0: Dismember, yeah. So, I mean, you were talking about obviously resecting the obstruction and doing a dismembered pyeloplasty. I didn't say anything about resecting. The uh, But the dismembered pyroplasty do not take a section of the, uh, the obstructed section out?
1: Not necessarily. Because uh, when you do a proper dismembered pyroplasty, you go uh, distally for the uh, obstruction, mm-hmm. and then, at least during the operation, don't resect it. Because you can use this as a handle, uh, when you are moving around with the ureter L- leave it on the ureter this the obstructed part and use this as a handle when you are suturing and okay. doing your, your anastomosis okay otherwise you will touch the ureter don't touch the ureter during operation it just makes an edema of the mucosa and makes it much more difficult for you mm-hmm. so just just leave this thing and i've learned this, this a min- uh, with a minimum invasive approach uh just just leave it, and at the end it's just something tissue that hangs around up there. you can cut it off and if it's too much and if it's just a bit small it's small thing, then then you just leave it there it's uh, doesn't matter anymore
0: okay. because you're,
1: you're, you are moving two healthy parts together and that will work
0: mm-hmm. do you, Do you taper the pelvis at all
1: um, depends uh, depends on on. The size of the pelvis, the place of insertion of the ureter into the pelvis. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'm, I, I, I taper the the, the pelvis, but um, many times I just leave it a disease because there's plastic surgery. Nice. it looks nice <laughs> if you do it, <laughs> but. <laughs> but it doesn't help anything. Yeah, yeah. But it's large, a large pelvis should be reduced, certainly. Like, but but uh, uh, an average hydronophosis is not necessary, I don't think so. Especially in a small surgery because the hydronophosis, the, the, the external part of the dilated pelvis will uh, shrink. It will shrink at the moment when you dismember. Mm-mm. We see this, it's, it's normal, it's just that, disappearing.
0: Yeah, and it's um, not under pressure it's, it's, anymore.
1: If you have an old old lady with the the, the force you have to re, you have to reduce the pelvis because this is tissue which has been there for many many years. But but in small children, it will just retract.
0: Okay, um, do you routinely leave a, a stent or a double J stent after your piloplasties?
1: We routinely leave a stent, yes, not a double J. Uh, in the beginning, we, we, we in the beginning of the minimal invasive, we had always a double J, but um, we, in the last ten years, I think we have used the blue stent, this uh, nephroureteric stent, mm. this very thin nephroureteric stent. Both kinds, the the double J and the nephroureteric stents, are prone to occlusion due to small blood clots. Yeah, the disadvantage, especially in smaller children and in children in general, is that if you have you have a double J, you have to remove it in general anesthesia. Yeah. Uh, while the, the blue stent can be replaced just by the general practitioner or somewhere. It's uh,
0: it's um, much easier. Uh, but do you, I mean, do you use those stents particularly because you do a minimally invasive technique, or would you use no. that even if you did open?
1: Well, you, you use a stent in open surgery as well. Okay. I know that, 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 that many people, a lot of people, not many people, but some people leave do not leave a stand at all, in the small one at least. And, um, well, I sleep better with a stand.
0: Yeah, no, no, sure. Uh, how long do you leave your stents in routinely then?
1: A double J, four weeks, and uh, 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 the blue stand, the nephro ureteric stand, for uh, uh, seven to ten days.
0: Okay, okay.
1: Don't ask. Uh, about the evidence for
0: this, there's no, <laughs> ev-
1: no evidence. Okay.
0: <laughs> so um, I believe you guys are good at robots. Um, have you found this has improved your outcomes, or is it is it just a nice toy?
1: Essentially, it's a nice toy, and, and it's uh, <laughs> yeah, but but don't don't be impressed. We have been doing robotic. Uh, is now for 18 years I think oh
0: wow okay
1: uh, from the very 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 beginning it was was number all robot was number three in Europe and uh, was very early we got the the robot because the cardiac surgeons at this time had the money to buy a robot but they couldn't use it
0: okay. they, couldn't,
1: they, they couldn't handle the heart and then then the the cardiologists came with all their staff and uh, so they they stopped to use the robot and I just took the robot and put it in our department <laughs> and asked afterwards about the costs. <laughs> <laughs> Which were Yeah, uh, so Okay, the robot you... is good for suturing. It's certainly good for suturing. The outcome is the same. Mm. The outcome with regard to older children is better because you don't make this quite large incision my hands are quite large if you uh, have to go in a let's say 13 year old boy um, going up there on the left side my hands inside doing a, a, a doing a, a, a dismembered pyeloplasty this is, requires some space yes for my hands at least if we are talking about these very small ones below 12 10 kilograms Robotics are feasible. You can see a lot of literature is feasible. It's feasible when you're a newborn. Mm. Feasible the same as necessary. Yeah. As you know, the, 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 the small ones, you just make a small muscle splitting incision, which is not more than three centimeters, and uh, you go down there, the kidney is very low. You just pick it up and do your dismembering, and that's it. So in small children, in, in, in infants, we make an open approach, and the older ones, above, 10-12 kilograms, we, we make the the uh, the robotic approach, and the robotic because it's easier for me, uh, for us to do, uh, do the, the the suturing.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: In the beginning, we made made all these uh, things. In the 90s, we made it with a laparoscopic approach, but it's so, <laughs> it's so difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But, easy it's, it's it's it sounds so good but it's very easy to do robotics it's uh, it's just uh, suturing without instruments
0: so uh, yeah and i suppose as you said the just the money is but the there limiting. is no
1: evidence that robotics improves the outcomes beside the fact that the incision is less and you have a shorter stay of um, in the hospital and and and, and and the pain is less, and so on. Mm. The normal things where you have the minimal invasive surgery, but the outcome in terms of recurrence and and precision, I don't think is better. No.
0: Okay. Well, can you maybe just uh, mention just what are some of the complications related to the surgery for pyloplastis? The complications are,
1: of course, that you get restenosis. And uh, I think uh, restenosis is often caused by a leakage of the motor. Okay. The reason why we use uh, stent. Um, we use the retroperitoneal access, even in the robot, which is a bit tricky. Um, because when you have finished your operation, the the space will disappear and keep around. Anastomosis. Well, if you have a uh, transperitoneal access, if you have a leakage, you get at least a smaller leakage. You will get uh, a kind of paralysis of the bowels mm-hmm. uh, after the operation due to the urine into the, inter- the peritoneum. Other other complications are usually related to these stents, making occlusion and not working and and, and things like that. Yeah, but other. Normally, it's a it's a quite, quite safe operation. It's uh, bleeding is not an issue, not mm. at all. Mm. Infection is extremely rare. Um, uh, scarring, yes, but um, some kind of, of uh, let's say wound infection. I don't. I have seen this. But but this is different perhaps from your country, I don't know. But uh, this is uh, extremely rare. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Round infection, it's not seen.
0: Good. What, 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 what would be your take-home message for, for people listening?
1: The take-home message is to be careful in your evaluation. And um, when you do surgery and you decide to do surgery do is dismembered piloplasty whenever possible um, this is I think the most important thing
0: um,
1: then you will end up with good results
0: excellent well, thank you so much for your time I appreciate uh, you giving us the your your vast experience and uh, different perspective on some of the things to what we have. Uh, we dream one day of also getting a robot.
1: Thank you so much. But remember, this is true. It's it's not the truth.
0: It's just my personal <laughs> experience. No, no, absolutely. No, we appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. And we wish you many many hours of happy sailing in the future.
1: <laughs> it's quite cozy. The sailing is is finished. Uh, boat is in the hall and so it's no sailing anymore. We have to wait for the next year.
0: So what are you you going to do over winter then?
1: Just drinking South South African wine. It's uh, (laughs) the only joy we have.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us on Discover Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together.